Welcome to the Wealthy Homes Podcast, where we help young Michigan families manage their finances and create wealth. I'm your host, Connor Bowserman, financial advisor with Preferred Financial Group. Welcome to another episode of the Wealthy Homes Podcast. In this episode, I have Kyle Frizzell joining me on the podcast, who is the owner and operator of the Farm Bureau Kyle Frizzell Agency. And so with that, Kyle, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So just real quick, if you could tell the audience just a little bit about you. So for those who don't know you, that they can get to know you a little bit. Yeah. So I have been a Farm Bureau insurance agent for just over five years now. It was five years in June. I got into that in 2018, graduated college May of 2018, and I contracted with Farm Bureau in June of 2018. Been doing that for about five years, and um, and now I've gotten into real estate recently. Got my realtor's license a couple weeks ago, and uh, I've been a couple years now in residential real estate investment properties. So awesome! So you got a young son, I saw too. Yep, uh, he was born March first. His name's Jimmer. Okay. I was a big cool. college basketball fan. I always have been, and Jimmer Fredette was one of my favorite players and figured Jimmer Fredette, Jimmer Frizzell, they flow just as yeah. good. Yep. Okay. So Chelsea let you go with that. She yeah. was okay with the name. She knew that going into things that that hasn't been a short term plan. Okay. Cool. Cool. So what kind of made you want to get into insurance? Was that something you kind of fell into initially and then eventually just wanted to become an agency owner? Kind of how did that happen? Yeah, so I went into college as a general, just normal business, maybe, I don't know if it was business management or business administration, but business major my first semester of college, and um, I went to Olivet College. It's a, uh, you obviously know you went to Olivet College as well, Um, big insurance program school, and I started Obviously, the people I met on the football team there, they were all in insurance. They were going on all these cool trips. They went to Dallas. They went to Chicago. They were doing all these cool trips all the time. And I'm like, well, I want to do that. Like, that sounds cool. At first, it wasn't anything about what the actual degree was. It was <laughs> like I wanted to travel and and do this these cool things that they were doing. So nonetheless, halfway through my first year, at the semester point, I changed my major to insurance. And then I found out that it was only like an extra six courses or so to do financial planning as well. So I double majored insurance and financial planning. I liked, originally liked the insurance program more. Quite frankly, I thought it was Mm -hmm. a little bit easier. (laughs) So you had to have an internship to graduate. So, and I wanted to get experience in the field anyways. So between my sophomore and junior year of college, I interned at Allstate in an agency. I didn't really have any corporate interest. I knew that I wanted to sell. So I uh, interned at a Allstate agency in Marshall and I liked it. It was fun. I was interested in that sort of grind. And going into my senior year, I interned at State Farm with a former graduate of Olivet College. I'm um, actually, he's best man in my wedding here in a couple months. So awesome. we stayed in, stayed in contact and So I knew that I wanted to be an agency. I knew that that was, I was interested in sales. Fast forward to actual senior year, I ended up getting injured in football, couldn't play anymore. So I actually went back to the Allstate agency that I worked at between my sophomore and junior year. 
and uh, made a post that, hey, selling insurance now, give me a call. And uh, a guy, Chris May, he's another Farm Bureau agent, but he sent me a message and he's Mm -hmm. like, hey, are you an Allstate agent now? And I'm like, no, I'm just a licensed sales producer. And he's like, well, do you want to become an agent? And I'm like, yeah, that's my dream job. So, and he's like, all right, call this guy. And he gave me somebody's contact and I reached out to him. And a couple months later, they told me that I could contract as soon as I graduated. So that's how I got into it. Awesome. Then from there, kind of what were your next steps when it came to building the agency? Was it just they had kind of their framework to, to build it out and then it was kind of yours to design from there? Kind of how did that work? Yeah. So I graduated, like I said, I graduated in May. I contracted in June. When you contract, you've got basically a month or two of just pure training, figuring it out, learning their systems, learning their products, all that kind of stuff. And then they place you in what they called at that time, I think they've changed the name now, but an ASO. It's basically like a regional office for all the new agents to come on and you don't have to you know, take on a lease or buying a building and all the risk that comes with business ownership, even though you are your own business owner. They kind of take that away in case things don't work out. If it doesn't right. pan out, you don't end up being good at it or whatever. You don't have to figure out how to get out of your lease or, or sell the building that you bought. So I started out in Holt, and there was two other agents in that ASO at the time, and they were good resources mi- mixed with the training that I got, and I went and talked. I figured out who the best agents in the company were, and I went and met with those guys and asked them a bunch of questions, and I went and met with an agent down in the southeast part of the state. His name is Merrick Maris. He's a huge commercial producer. I think his first question to me was, how many employees do you have? And I had, this was like day 20 on the job. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I've got Melody, you know, she's like the corporate staff that they put in this office. And he's like, well, do you pay her? And I'm like, no. And he's like, so you don't have any employees? And I'm like, correct. (laughs) And he goes, all right, well, I'm going to go open a restaurant and I'm not going to hire a cook. I'm not going to hire any waiters. I'm not going to hire any bus boys, anything like that. And it's going to go awesome. Right. And I quickly realized what he was saying. So I went back to the office that day and Facebook messaged almost anybody with a pulse that I thought might be able to get licensed and sell insurance. And then I just built from there. That's awesome. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the top Farm Bureau agent in Michigan or is it in the nation? What was, you know, you guys were the one of the top agency. Yeah, it depends what measurable you look at, but like volume, amount of policies bound in a month. Yes, we're about double second place and that's state farm bureau insurance in michigan's a single state operation we started entirely from scratch in 2018 i i we've acquired zero books of business anything and we've built the biggest book in our region which is probably i don't know 15 ish counties if i had to guess i could be wrong i've never counted them but yeah built in five years we built the biggest book in the region entirely from scratch so we've done really good i've got a really good team Yeah, it's been fun. That's awesome. Obviously, there was a lot of hard work and sweat equity that went into it, but what products did Farm Bureau have that kind of made it a lot easier to build that? So, yes, it definitely took a lot of figuring it out and grinding and and long, long hours. Farm Bureau has cool products that are unique to the industry. We're pretty much entirely personal lines. 
that's we started that way and we've done really well with it and we are we have plans to build out commercial and farm and all of that stuff but as of right now we're pretty much an entirely personal lines book of business and there's cool personal lines policies like farm bureau's got a country estate policy basically what that is is you know your hobby farms your you know if they've got five or more acres they're eligible for a country estate policy if they're two or more acres and uh, zoned agriculture they're eligible as well and then if they are any sort of hobby farmer whatsoever you know chickens 4-h animals whatever it may be then acreage doesn't matter they're automatically eligible so it provides additional liability and coverage that a normal homeowner's policy wouldn't lake estate policy that's uh deeded lakefront access it provides additional additional coverage and limits for seawalls and uh, those kind of things so there has been there are some niche products that they have that make it easier to do business and provide the coverage people are looking for but it really came down to working our face off i Mm -hmm. when i first started i hired my first producer at six months then a couple months later i hired two more producers and at that time i wasn't hiring service staff because the company provided service staff so that made it nice as i didn't have a lease I didn't have to pay for the paper or the ink or anything like that. I didn't have to pay for the extra space for the people I brought on. I kind of got to just build up my agency within that, within that office. Okay. So I was hiring pretty much all producers. So, and then that summer, obviously I had just graduated the year before. So I knew a ton of friends that had to have an internship before they could graduate. So I had two internships that summer and, uh, they, they did really well. So I had probably five producers or so and, we were working long hours. They were working long hours. They didn't have anything to do. It was summer and they mm-hmm. weren't from around there. So they were, you know, bored and just wanted to work and make money. So the first probably two years I was working 12, 14 hours a day, honestly, cause I didn't have anything to do. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have anything better to do. I figured right. might as well grind now and enjoy it later when I do have those things. Mm-hmm. That's awesome kind of in the midst of that you decided to kind of get into real estate how did that start was it during covid that kind of sparked it kind of what was the beginning part of that so it did start during covid it wasn't related to covid at all but that was when i started getting into it and figuring it out and all that a good uh, friend and mentor of mine his name's jeff lamborn he's a agent in the west side in grand rapids he reached out to me. He's like, Hey, you're writing a lot of business. You know, what are you doing? Cause he used to write a ton as well. He was writing the numbers we've been writing before I was, and he's been around for 20 plus years, probably 25 years or so. And, uh, we started talking, building relationship. We're really good friends now, but, uh, he was asking me, what are you doing? Well, then it turned into me asking him, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like what, again, I knew that he had real estate and all that. And, I just started picking his brain and he's a wealth of knowledge. There's no doubt about that. I've learned like 80% of what I know from the guy and he was telling me all the tax benefits. He was, you know, explaining how it worked. And after a year of like telling myself, Oh, I want to do this. Cause obviously every, every sort of business ever, you got the people that talk about doing it and the people that actually doing it. Yeah. Oh, I spent a year talking about doing it mm-hmm. and I'm like, Oh, I finally need to do it. So I, ended up buying my first duplex actually not long. I mean, it's been, it would, that would have been March or April of last year, 2022. 
And, um, I just, I'm an all in kind of guy. It doesn't yeah, really matter what, what it is. I don't really have a shutoff valve. So I bought my first duplex in April or May. I ended up buying the second duplex in October, third duplex in December, single family in December. And then that was the first year, the first eight months or so. And I had to figure out a lot of stuff really quickly because I didn't know what I was doing. I had watched a ton of videos, but you can right. prepare all you want <laughs> yeah. until you actually have to face it. So that that that's what got into me into it was Jeff. He was okay. a good mentor of mine, and I knew I needed to do it. It made too much sense not to do it. When you first bought those first properties, was it just you personally owned them, or did you know to, to start a business and then funnel it through the business? How did, how did you start? So I knew, I knew that. So I have bought all of my properties personally. Okay. Uh, I, I finance them personally. And then after closing, I'll quit claim them to the LLC, Gotcha. which some people will say you, you can't do that, but I've talked to my lender and everything and they, they don't mind. You're, you're personally signing the note. So that's the thing they really care about is who's promising to pay. So I'll buy them in my personal name and then I quit claim them to the LLC I, for my first property, I hired a property manager because, like I said, I had no idea what I was doing. The house needed, it didn't need the work, but I like things looking nice mm -hmm. and, you know, the higher rent by having a nicer place. So I did some renovations to it and then I needed help leasing. And I completely overcomplicated in my head how tough all of that was. But until you see it happen for the first time, it'll be that way. So. I, they leased it out. And then when I bought the second one, I'm like, oh, I can do this. And a good buddy of mine, Trent Strang, when you mm -hmm. and I were talking about him, he, he's a friend of mine. And I just asked him like, Hey, how do you do this? Where do you get a lease? How do you, you know, how do you market for it? How do you, all that stuff. And it was way easier than I made it out to be in my head. That's awesome. Kind of looking back, what was maybe something that you wish you would have known at the very beginning that would have made it probably a little bit easier, especially in those first six months. I wish I would have just dove in myself rather than going through property management because nobody's going to care about your properties as much as you do. And mm -hmm. you don't really know how much people's eyes are on your properties and that kind of stuff. So I wish that I would have started managing. I could have saved a lot of issues managing it myself right off the start. So I wish I would have figured that out. But there's also people that don't agree with that. There's people that think you should have a property manager and there are benefits to having a property manager rather than doing it yourself. I mean, mm -hmm. they're the first layer of liability. If something goes right. wrong, you've got, you've got a property manager that size we're supposed to be on at first and they have liability insurance and all that. And the, the cost of management is tax deductible. So yeah, they may charge 10%, but net net you're looking at like 7%. So there's a lot of people that believe in that, but I would rather have my hands on it. I'm the same way with my insurance business. I'm the same way with everything. I, I know that I'm going to have hundred percent interest and, and make sure that things go well. I don't know for sure. You can trust somebody a ton, but right. it's not theirs. They don't care okay. about it as much as you do. So kind of when it came to getting pre-approved and kind of starting that process, was it something you had been saving for? You sounded like you had been working for about a year before you actually made the purchase. So is it something you saved quite heavily for, or was it something that you kind of more cash flowed at that point in time? How yeah. Was that? 
the, the year of wait was more just uncertainty, I guess you could say. I just didn't know if I wanted to do it for sure. I didn't know if I could commit to the time that it may require for it. But um, I just, uh, uh, the lender that actually financed my personal home, I just reached out to him and I'm like, hey, you know, how much down do you need? How do I get approved? All of that. And it was the same, pretty much the same approval process as it is for just a normal home. Obviously, they ask a little bit more questions because it's, you know, investment related, but it's on a single family home, 20% down is what you're looking at. On multifamily, you're looking at 25% down. Those are, pretty much non-negotiable. You can't really right. get it much lower than that. And, um, and yeah, you got probably 5% or so in closing costs. So I had the money saved up. Yeah. And I said, it's time to do it. The deal actually came to me off market, which I prefer all my best deals that I've gotten have been off market. And it was a great deal. I did the calculations on if it would make money or not. And that I'm a numbers guy. So that part of it comes really easy to me. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, same same pre-approval process as you'd be looking at for a home, pretty much. And okay, so how do you do start screening the properties? Is it something that you just went on and kind of looked at just rental rates in your area, like through some different websites? Kind of how did you know particularly if that property was going to cash flow positively? Yeah, I did a bunch of YouTube video watching and that kind of stuff to figure out how to calculate mortgages and all that. So yes, I'll use Zillow. I go on Zillow, you can press rent up at the top, put in a zip code, put in an area. You can filter by how many beds and how many baths if you want. I typically just filter by beds. And you can see what people are asking for in the area. And then you click on that property and you scroll down and you can see how many days it's been listed for rent. And you can see how many contacts they've had. So you can get an idea based on the photos, based on how long it's been listed, based on how many contacts there's been, if that rate seems like it's a competitive rate that you could get a renter in for. So I would do that, figure out, hey, this is a two bed, one bath, it's in Charlotte, let's say, and you know this person has a comparable home as far as you know uh, quality of home, what it looks like, all that, space, you know, fenced in yard, whatever it may be. And they're asking $1,100 a month. And it's been listed for 20 days and they've had 17 contacts. So I knew, well, I can definitely count on that for sure. So then you just Google uh, mortgage calculator. And right. if you Google mortgage calculator, Google has one that automatically populates that you don't even have to click a link. So I just use that one. You can check, you know, include taxes and taxes and insurance or taxes and fees and you can put in, well, what do you think the purchase price of the home is going to be? So if I saw that there was a house on the MLS that came up that I'm like, wow, this looks like a good opportunity, I would figure out what would I realistically offer on it? Because as you know, right now, homes are going for more than ask price. And yes. especially if you want to be competitive about it, you got to be quick and you got to offer above ask. And then your terms in the, in the purchase agreement have to be favorable too. So if a house is listed for, say, $100,000, I would say offer 110,000 and then I'm going to waive inspections and I'm going to include an appraisal guarantee that if the house doesn't appraise for the value of the, for the purchase price, then I will come out of pocket the difference because those make it way more, yep. you know, way more attractive for the seller. So let's say $100,000 is the purchase price of the home. I put that in the calculator. It's a single family home. I know I'm putting 20% down. 
interest rates on an investment property right now about seven and a half percent and then insurance obviously that comes easy to me i know approximately how much right. it's going to cost to insure the house put that in there and then taxes is where it gets kind of difficult so you got to look at the current assessed value and you got to figure out what you know you obviously know what you're going to offer so the assessed value is typically about half of what they you know say the house is worth and that'll obviously adjust after the sale of the home so let's say for instance a house is 200,000 and the taxes are currently say $2,000 a year. If it's currently assessed for 50,000, that means that they're paying taxes on in a house about 100,000. So I know after closing if I buy it for 200,000, the taxes are going to double. Then you have to take into account if it's currently homestead or non-homestead. If that house is currently homestead, it's going to switch non-homestead after I buy it as mm -hmm. an investment property. So I've figured out, and this is just what my brains told me. I don't know if it's, it seems pretty accurate, but about 1.4 times what that number came out to be to calculate for it being non-homestead. Okay. So I put all that into a mortgage calculator and it kicks out what my mortgage taxes and insurance will be. And now I'm going to take that number and run it against what I saw rents would be. And I typically try to make sure it cash flows five grand a year. If it cash flows five grand a year, I consider it to be a good deal. Anything more than that, I consider it to be a great deal. Right. Okay. That's awesome. Thanks for that. I appreciate the, the insights because I know some people don't want to divulge all that, but right. I think that's really cool. So kind of what are some challenges that you've kind of run into? Is it, have you had the nightmares of bad runners? Has it been pretty smooth sailing? I mean, besides maybe some minor things that needed to be fixed or kind of what are some challenges that you've run into? Yes, I have had issues already and it's stemmed with me not putting the tenants in the in the property so that first one i come to find out the person that signed the lease wasn't actually living there and it ended with a house fire so okay. I, everything in between is yeah it didn't go good so i'm working through that claim right now in that process but the homes that i have put you know that i have filled i have great tenants they're they treat it really well. They take care of it. It's not people. You hear people talk about all the horror stories of, oh, we owned rentals and it went terrible. It's like, all right, well, were you maybe in a business you weren't fit for? Did you research it? Did you, you know, it, it really isn't that isn't that bad at all. Mm -hmm. I, my phone rarely gets hit with things unless it's something that I'm doing to the property to, you know, increase the value or just value adds to it. But yeah, there's as far as issues that I've had, not a ton. Okay. It's really not that bad at all. Has higher interest rates made it a little bit tougher? Because, I mean, probably from when you started to, to now, I mean, the interest rates have, I would say, drastically have changed. Mm -hmm. Has that made it tougher or has it just changed the calculation of cash flow? It changes the calculation of cash flow, but the your taxes are... A property taxes on an investment property are tax deductible. So it really has only gone up 70% of what it actually has gone up because 30% of it, I'm, you know, I'm saving in taxes and tax benefits. So yeah, the, the interest rates, they have gone up. It has slowed down how much you can cash flow on a property, but it really isn't a big deal it would be one thing if it wasn't a tax deductible increase but right. it is so i'm okay. still buying i 
Closed last Wednesday on a duplex in Holt and 7.5% interest rate. My last three properties have been 7.5% interest rate. And that's been since December. It's kind of hasn't really changed a whole lot since December. But yeah, my first property, I think, was 5%. So, and that was in March or April, like I said. So it's gone up a substantial amount. I closed on my personal home in February of last year, and I, I think 3.375, and investment properties are typically a percent over that, so 4.75 to 7.5% in 12 months is a pretty substantial right. increase. Exactly. When it comes to insurance, how much more of an increase is it compared to being like a personal home to then have it be a rental? Is it 20, 30% more in premium? Kind of what's the, the difference there? It does change company to company. It would be, I don't know how other companies do it, to be honest, but at Farm Bureau, uh, there's no insurance score tied to an investment property. Uh, it's based on a rating rating sheet, based on area, where is it at, what's the protection class, which is a fancy way of saying how far is the fire department. Right. Um, and that's, you know, those are the two biggest indicator if it's, you know, tenant non-owner occupied or if it's owner occupied those sorts of things play a role in it but uh it it is more it just depends on area and it depends on the person because if a person has a low insurance score homeowner's insurance is going to be really high for them but so you know a rental property for them could be cheaper than an actual homeowner's policy for them but somebody that has a good or great insurance score, the rental, it's going to be more because there is more risk. Once again, I was talking about property management. And if you're a property manager, you're not going to care as much about my property as I'm going to care about it. Same thing with tenants. Tenants aren't going to care as much about your property as you care about it. So the risk is a lot higher. So the premium needs to reflect that. Okay. So at this point in time, how many properties or units that you have? Yeah. Uh, 10. So I've got four duplexes, two single family. That's awesome. You have any plans to continue that throughout the, this year? Or? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm going to keep growing it and I want to get to a hundred units. So okay. I, I think I can get there in the next 10 years or so. I've done 10 in a year and you can keep scaling it pretty easily because you can take money out as well. You can cash out refinances, that kind of stuff. So you know, 10 years from now, what do the values look like on my homes? Last In the last 12 months, I bought $1.25-ish million of real estate. You know, real estate prices have historically doubled every 15 years or so. So, if the you know, I'll probably have $2 million of real estate in 10 years. I've paid down the debt on the properties that I have. So, I should have a prob- approximately a million dollars of equity that I can take out because you can't take out more than say 75%, you can't, right. you got to have some a, equity there. Correct. So there's a million dollars to go buy more and keep scaling and scaling and all the biggest real estate investors, that's what they're doing there. Some of them might have just boatloads of money coming in, but other mm-hmm. ones are just scaling and using leverage to, to scale their business out. Okay. And I know you've recently got your real estate license. So I guess kind of what's the next steps with that? Is it just more or less just continuing from your insurance book of business or is it is it more because you wanted to save some on your properties that you're buying yeah both really we've got 3200 households that we insure 
in the state of Michigan. Those are this is an added service that we can provide to them. You know, buying, selling homes, investing in real estate, that sort of thing. We can kind of be more of a one-stop shop for more than just than just insurance. And then, yeah, I mean, on the properties that I'm buying, there's multiple benefits. Saving three percent on every home transaction I've done, and like I said, a little over a million last year, that'll save me thirty-five grand. That's another house. Mm-hmm. You've got that benefit of it. You can see houses whenever you want to see the houses. You can write your own offers. You kind of on your own on your own terms a little bit. So it was it was a benefit that I saw in multiple areas. So it made That's too awesome. much sense. Well, I guess that kind of starts to wrap things up. But before we go, I want to ask you the same question that I ask everybody who comes on. But what's one piece of advice you'd give another young family? It doesn't have to be real estate or insurance. It can pretty much be anything. I would say invest early and often. Don't live beyond your means and put the money that you're making and you have left over into investments, whether it be stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, real estate, crypto, whatever you're into, just put it somewhere and let it, let it go to work. Cause obviously I'm a big believer in compounding interest and, uh, the later you start, the worse the results are. So mm-hmm. I would say invest in whatever way you understand. I would say that's the biggest thing. Don't put your money into something that somebody says is good. If you can't wrap your head around it and you don't understand it and you don't believe in it, don't invest in it. Even though uncle, you know, Chuck is telling you, Hey, you need to buy Apple stock. Well, if you don't believe in Apple stock and you don't believe in the growth and you don't believe in the business, there's tons and tons of businesses and, and markets to invest in. Pick one that you believe in and, and you trust and just invest. I agree hundred percent. So if someone wanted to reach out to you, kind of what are the best ways that they could get a hold of you? Yeah. Uh, email is probably the best. My personal email is kfrizell, K-F-R-I-Z-Z-E-L-L 7878 at gmail.com. That's probably the best route. I'm on Instagram, kfrizzy, K-F-R-I-Z-Z-Y 95. Phone number? 517-740-9499. Awesome. Well, thanks, Kyle. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Wealthy Homes Podcast. Be sure to click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Connor Bowsman or Preferred Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of Connor Bowserman or other qualified financial advisors with any questions you may have regarding this episode. Connor Bowserman is a licensed financial advisor and any of the investment advisory services offered are through Harbor Investments, member SPIC. Products and services provided are not NCOA insured, have no credit union guarantee, and may lose value. Consumers Professional Credit Union and Marshall Community Credit Union and Harbor Investments are separate and independent companies, and credit unions are not providing security services.